Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Penchassi. My guest today is Alexia Yates, the author of Selling Paris, Property and Commercial Culture in the Fin de Siècle Capital, and the book was published by Harvard University Press in 2015. Hi there, Alexia. Hi. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I'm very happy to have the opportunity. Would you get us started by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in working on France? Of course. So I began, uh, you know, my undergraduate studies not at all as a historian of France. I was, uh, I did an honors thesis on the English Civil War. Um, I was a, you know, I was a scholar, um, if, if that's what we can call honors theses at the undergraduate level of early modern Britain. Um, but I did my studies in the U.S. and studies, uh, students in the U.S. often have the opportunity to go abroad for a year. Um, now, I did not go to France. I went to Ireland. But I had the opportunity uh, to, uh, really, this was the first time I I took a 19th century European history course uh, at Trinity College in Dublin, um, and it happened to be taught by, you know, a scholar whose work I later became very familiar with, James Lidesey, and he taught this course as, you know, sort of, you know, France and the birth of modernity in the modern world, Um, and uh, I was sort of completely swept away. This was cemented when I returned to finish my degree um, with uh, a class by John Monroe, who was finishing up his degree at the time at Yale, and he was hired by my college to come, you know, sort of teach a course. We didn't have anyone teaching French history at my college, um, and he he taught a year long course on Paris uh, as capital of the 19th century. Um, and so I had to tell my undergraduate supervisor that while I would you know, complete my honors degree in early modern British history, I was I was won over to France, mm-hmm. and um, and it was really uh, you know sort of a uh, a coup de coeur. I, uh, I just uh, really enjoyed these particular classes, um, and that set me on the road. Well, and it sounds like you got interested in France through this work on or learning about 19th century Paris. So I see, I see where the book comes from in that way, but how, <laughs> how did you get interested uh, and, and set on the road to working on real estate and property mm-hmm. and commercial culture? Part of that is, you know, part of it was pragmatic, part of it was fortuitous. Um, certainly I did my MA at the University of Toronto, and, and I worked on youth culture in Paris. Mm. Um, so I fully intended to do, uh, you know, my PhD on, on youth culture with a strong spatial component, studying ways that, that young people um, you know, sort of tried to find and create spaces for themselves in the modern city. But, so, you know, as much as I began with a very urban focus, though not specifically a property focus, um, I have to say that Paris is not a city that lacks for chroniclers. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a degree to which um, I was looking for a new approach uh, to a space that has been at the core of you know, most broadly French history, but also you know, cultural studies, of urban studies. And I was hoping to find, um, and I think eventually I did find, uh, in the study of its property dynamics, uh, an approach to urban culture that that didn't neglect the culture part, but that sort of upped the ante on the social history part. And the fortuitous, or uh, perhaps fortuitous is not the right word, um, but the more circumstantial element, I would say, uh, of looking for a dissertation topic is that while I began my research in 2005, um, a lot of the substantive 
writing um, and sort of, you know, really critical engagement with my sources once my archival trips were done, that was between, you know, 2007 and 2010. Um, so this is the, you know, height of the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, this was, you know, seeing Alan Greenspan on television talking about what the nature of a national property market is or in his argument is not. I think I could have imagined a world in which looking at property dynamics would sort of intellectually make a lot of sense um, and could have been arrived at through a variety of routes. But imagine a world in which the mortgage suddenly became a topic of everyday conversation. I think that was something that, you know, I didn't I didn't predict. Um, right. and, and certainly it shaped the form that the book took, took the it shaped the kinds of questions that I was asking of it, that people were asking me of it. Um, <laughs> So very much, I think, the circumstances uh, in, in which it was composed um, sh- shaped, you know, how it was composed. And, and I think that I, I think there's evidence in the book that I did at the time, and I continue, I think, with my new research to sort of to work hard and then not necessarily resolve this sort of problem of presentism that is in the book still, I think. And I think it comes from that particular sort of nascent moment in in a moment when, you know, it seemed like real estate was defining uh, sort of our, our globalized financial world. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, situating that historically continues to be, uh, you know, a really important task. So, you know, I had one of these kind of wonderful experiences that I sometimes do when I read these books mm-hmm. for the podcast where, you know, I think I know a little bit about the urban history <laughs> of Paris in the 19th century. I lecture on housemanization. And, you know, when I started reading the book, I, I had that experience of thinking, oh, right. <laughs> How come I've never really thought about this or read about this before? Um, so I guess that's one of the first questions I wanted to ask you. We think we know about Paris in the 19th century because of what we know about the urban history through the history of housemanization. But the book sort of is really starting in the in the early years of the Third Republic. So there's that chronological shift. But it's also a response to the approach of those Mm -hmm. scholars and studies of the urban history of the capital in the 19th century focused on housemanization. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, and again, you know, the distinction between a dissertation and a book, you know, when I was writing this dissertation, I you know, was trying as hard as I could to ignore Houseman. Um <laughs> and, uh, you know, saying, you know, I'm going to stake my claims somewhere else. Um, right. We don't, you know, we don't need to think more about Houseman at this moment. Um, and, and I hope that I managed to bring him in more in the finished version of the book, um, because, of course, he is inescapable, and the particular property regime, uh, the sort of public-private regime development that he establishes under the direction of and coordination with uh, Napoleon III and the Second Empire, um, thanks to some other uh, strands of historic, I wouldn't say historical of scholarship, you know, of that sort of historical geography, and here I'm thinking primarily of David Harvey, um, mm-hmm. Husband stays, again, really prominent in our understanding of sort of development regimes, um, what other scholars in the city have called growth machines. But there's a real jump in some of this scholarship, sort of a really historically insensitive jump from Hausman to the present, you know, which completely overlooks all of the permutations of urban development grappling with the problem of urban growth that occur obviously not only in Paris in between, but in many different urban centers mm-hmm. between the mid-19th century and the present. So I did distinctly think that, you know, there's something that we need to learn from how people try to reconstitute their city in the aftermath of, of the kind of revolution that he constituted. 
You make the point in the introduction, Alexia, that, you know, you're interested, and I'm quoting you here, in the fundamental reconfigurations in the relations between finance, commerce, and real estate that occurred at the end of the 19th century and that uh, now I'm sort of paraphrasing loosely, shaping that shaped both the built form and social experience of the modern metropolis. And you underline in, ver- in the introduction, but then go on in, in the various chapters of the books to really explore the ways in which real estate is a social product. So can you explain a little bit what that phrase means for you? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I mean it both in um, in the ways that you just drew out there in terms of it of its built form, and then the social experience of the environment. Um, you know, I did want to part of the contribution that the book is trying to make is also to uh, you know a, a scholarship about the, the sociology and the anthropology of markets. Um, it's looking at practices uh, by which markets are made up, by which they're constituted, and through the actors through which markets are are performed, the tools by which they're made. So when I wanted to talk about real estate as a social product, what I want to say is that, you know, it is not something that is uh, out there, that is a pre-given, that is simply, you know, a lot of land, which owing to conditions of scarcity will take on particular qualities given, you know, urban density, etc. But that it is, you know, a legal entity that it, of course, is something that that bears uh, some some deep uh, cultural and political meaning, and that these various strains of its existence uh, need to be constantly negotiated. Mm-hmm. So that's you know sort of thinking about it as a thing, and then to connect it to this notion of a social experience, I, I also wanted to highlight that it is, um, you know, in this process of construction, something that is a terrain of contestation. I just want to follow up on something you said then and then maybe also linking back to what you described as the kind of context in which you were doing the research and writing Mm -hmm. this book and well, the dissertation and then the book that, you know, it's hard to write about property and capitalism and (laughs) cities without political and moral positions and judgments Mm -hmm. coming into play. And I guess I wonder about dealing with questions Mm -hmm. of distributions of wealth and inequity. And yeah, just if you could speak to how you negotiated that as a researcher and a writer wanting to explore and examine this landscape, but then also perhaps wanting to, I don't know, come down on on, uh, the developers and speculators that, I mean, you don't really, you don't, the implication is there at moments. I mean, I I was doing it as I was reading, but I just wonder about that for you as a, as an author, what that was like. Yeah, and I mean, and there are moments, and I'm glad that I find them too when I re when I reread the book. Um, you know, where you know, I at least say, you know, there was an opportunity for here for the city to look more humane, and they didn't take it. Right. But those are a few sentences out of many, many pages. Um, sure. And I think that, uh, and I don't mean this as a judgment. Just to be clear, no, I understand, and I, and I, I agree. And I've had obviously, I've grappled with the question, but you know, and and it's obviously it's also something of deep. It's only become of more contemporary significance, um, you know, with the publication of Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century. Um, he puts a tremendous amount of weight, and he has more in public discourse since then on the role of real estate um, in kind of intergenerational uh, wealth transfers and the accumulation of wealth in housing as one of the most significant uh, kind of barriers to social mobility that we that we currently have you know and it took me you know just to sort of to, to enter the confessional it took me a really long time to recognize sort of the illicitness of 
what some of the, particularly my real estate agents, um, the developers is a little bit more obvious right from the beginning, but I think because I spent so much time trying to find these agents, mm-hmm. real estate agents are not easy to find in the archives, and that whenever I did find them, I was so, so happy, and I just, you know, was was devouring information I could find, and I was like, what kind of furniture did they own, etc. <laughs> That sometimes you step back and you, I'd be like, well, I, I would just read a case of one of their bankruptcy files and I'd be like, oh, these are some shady guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, and you, you'd develop a real, uh, you'd instantly kind of, your mind would go to a parallel situation today and you'd think, oh, you know, these people aren't worth your time. But of course they are. Right. You make the point in the introduction, Alexia, that this is an urban history of business and a business history of a city. And I really like that formulation. I think it encapsulates the project here. Uh, We've talked about the urban history and how the book is a contribution to that field when it comes to 19th century Paris. So I guess I want to ask you about the business history side of it, the way in which you see the book as a contribution to, yeah, to the history of enterprise, Mm -hmm. to the history of French capitalism, liberalism, uh, in a broad sense. Yeah, the book broadened out uh, as I was uh, doing it as well Um, because I did very much start out committed to this as a a specific type of business history and this is why I think probably the people that I spent uh, the most time on you know as I I was just sort of outlining um, would be trying to track down these particular agents because we hadn't you know ever seen or heard much from them before Mm -hmm. and and then they're important for a number of reasons as as you pointed out not only in sort of the urban history aspect of sort of what it is they're doing to sort of build an understanding of the city as well as the actual spaces of the city but the insights they can give us about you know what it was like to be a business person in late 19th century France and where it is that this uh, sort of story of speculation of risk-taking of, you know, as I've said, sometimes shady enterprise, um, fits in with our other stories of what sources of, uh, to put it in this broadest terms, what the sources of the self were um, in 19th century uh, French political culture. Um, so the book does engage with, you know, I think, some of our most prominent uh, you know, historians on this topic, primarily Sarah Maza, with her work on the earlier period about mm-hmm. trying to find this sort of mythical French bourgeoisie. Right. And, you know, whether the bourgeoisie exists or not in the period she's discussing, you know, what she really foregrounds is sort of problem of self-interest that I think does remain quite prominent uh, French political culture throughout the 19th century. Um, that doesn't seem to prevent people from becoming extremely successful businessmen, but it does prevent them from becoming celebrated in a way that I think we would see in some other uh, primarily Anglo-Saxon contexts. So, you know, the book certainly is a further contribution to work, which I think since the you know 1970s, 1980s, you know, has sort of overturned this notion that there's, you know, the French have no word for entrepreneur, that um, <laughs> it means a very specific thing. Um, so it is a, it's a further contribution to that, uh, to that historiography. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, uh, you know, I think we have to acknowledge that capitalism at its broadest, um, but, you know, business and perhaps a more narrow sense, continue to occupy a very ambiguous place um, in, in public life. Um, you know, it was not your route to being celebrated um, as a member of, particularly a member of, uh, of the Republic, despite the fact that, you know, 
we, we know that the Third Republic was um, one that firmly embraced liberal economic norms. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it, it remains quite ambiguous, but it is certainly different. I don't, you know, I wouldn't want to say that, you know, if you study these real estate speculators, you study these risk-taking individuals, and you see these people, you know, someone like Paul Focchio, who's got mm-hmm. this this English masthead um, on, on the front of his development, because that, you know, time is money. Um, yeah. I'm not trying, you know, that doesn't mean that the ethos of French business was exactly the same as everywhere else. It does mean that when you study business cultures, um, and when you study uh, possibly cultures of capitalism, you know, we need to be very attentive to time, to place, and even to sector, right? Mm-hmm. That real estate might look like, you know, might look like it does in the States or it might not, but that doesn't mean um, that other industries do. You just mentioned the architect and developer, Paul Foucault. Mm-hmm. And I guess I want to ask you, so there are architects, developers, mm-hmm. a kind of broad question about who the book deals with. And each chapter is kind of mm-hmm. focused on a different set of actors or agents, sometimes more than one, but really kind of there's a central one for mm-hmm. each of the chapters. Who is the book about and mm-hmm. what archival materials, what are your sources in terms of accessing, you know, you talk about hunting down these agents mm-hmm. and you know, so if you could give us a sense of the broad categories of actors and agents, not real estate agents, but historical agents mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in the book. And then, yeah, what source materials you were looking at and what sort of novel contributions you see uh, the book making in terms of archives that we may not know as much about. Yeah, I think my book still needed more individual actors, but I do think I, you know, I, I've got I've got a lot in there. Yeah. Um, because one of the one of the key things it's trying to do, right? Of course, it's it's engaging with you know a very prominent scholarship about you know sort of how urban capitalism operates in the 19th century um, in France, um, in which normally in that scholarship uh, the only actors are Napoleon III and Houseman right. or capital capital itself. So. One of the goals of this book is to find a bunch of other people and uh, sort of institutions that are involved. So we do have uh, sort of these business-minded, speculative architects, um, Albert Robert, uh, Paul Foucault, um, Henri Blondel, um, who come up, and, and far more anonymous ones who come up as well. It has uh, intermediaries of various sorts would be a good way of naming a whole other host of characters. So, mm-hmm. you know, the real estate agents, notaries as well. So, you know, sort of these uh, legal intermediaries who, who really bridge what you might call a more traditional world of commerce and sort of a more contemporary-looking world of commerce. Property owners who appear in the forms of their interest groups are also key actors in the story, um, and I think that sort of that you know, the people that own the property of the city have really not been considered in any active sense as engaged in urban development, um, and they certainly were. Tenants are also important, um, and you hear, again, I'm successful at finding at least the names of some of them, if not much more, about you know, what it is that they're doing in their buildings. But tenants are important actors, primarily because the book tries to follow a structure where it looks at how property acts as a, and is constructed as a commercial object. So it moves through this chain of production, distribution, and consumption. So at each of those points, it uh, tries to find the people who are engaged in making property do that thing. Mm-hmm. 
a lot of the sources for this book are you know, again I began as a business as a business history or business archives France has got some excellent business archives mm-hmm. um, for anyone who wants to travel to Lille um, and to go to Roubaix to see the uh, branch of the uh, National Archives dedicated to the world of work the people who would never have been you know side by side in life are in this archive mm-hmm. uh, you know banks are next to labor or organizations, anything associated broadly with the world of work um, is uh, at this particular archive, and they happen to have the uh, sort of company reports, annual filings of real estate companies in particular for this project, um, but of, of many other sorts of enterprises as well. So that was one important source and certainly where I started to sort of try to figure out, you know, what kind of documentation does exist about these particular companies? How much can right. I find? Oh, I mean, obviously I had, a, I had quite a few printed sources because I deal a lot with advertising, uh, advertising in the city, so that, uh, you know, would have taken me to all of my lovely moments at the Bibliothèque Nationale. Mm-hmm. But I also, in trying to find these agents, uh, had to be a little bit more creative. So I used bankruptcy files uh, at the Paris archives quite a lot um, in order to try to get a sense of what the nature of their offices were. When an agent goes bankrupt, they do a uh, survey uh, of of his of his goods so sometimes even if the person has fled you can get a sense of what sort of airs he had about his business by the things he leaves behind so those were quite important sources i also found private business archives and that required you know very much being on the spot in paris and being willing to walk into agencies um, and try to set up appointments uh, with people to see if any of the very few real estate agencies that are still in existence today but which began in the 19th century had anything they were willing to let you look at so that meant you know as i said turning up um, and sometimes being willing to turn up a few times but more prominently and this is sort of I think the thing I'm most proud of, um, the thing I found that I'm most mm-hmm. proud of, you can find out about the current owners of any businesses um, in France uh, by writing to the Tribunal de Commerce. Um, they have to keep these documents on, on record and you pay, I think at the time it was something like 12 euro and you can get the sort of the, the filing, the most recent filing of that company, which has all the home addresses of the registered owners of mm. uh the particular company you're interested in. So for some of these agencies, um, I found home addresses. Um, and I you know, rest assured, I did not go to anyone's home um, and present myself to look for archives. Uh, but I did, you know, find very appropriate, impressive looking stationery and pen uh, very formal letters uh, to these individuals uh, with, you know, references to people they could contact. And, uh, and through that way, I was able to find some of my most interesting sort of private archives. Um, so, really interesting. Yeah, and, and, and professional associations as well. Um, you know, I could, I could go on and, uh, and, and perhaps will as the conversation takes us there. But, um, you know, there's, it has some hazards um, sure. <laughs> working with contemporary associations um, who really do care about you know how their profession is is depicted. Yeah, no, I was curious about how the fact that the book has such an emphasis on private actors and interests translates into challenges archivally uh, with access, but also with how you use the material that you're that you're dealing with. In the first chapter, 
of the book, Alexia, you deal with the building question in this period. And so I guess I want to ask you, what does that mean, the building question? <laughs> and in particular, as you're exploring the significance of building to Paris and its history at the end of the 19th century, how is the story that you're telling a kind of after the watershed story, the watershed or sheds being or bricks being the Franco-Prussian War, the siege, Paris Commune, how is this book the exploration of a history in the wake of? So the building question is, you know, that's a, it's not an actor's formulation. That's my formulation of you know, how the city, in an effort to try to come to terms with it, by, when I say the city, I mean here the municipal council, mm-hmm. um, this newly created elected municipal council, which all of a sudden makes a kind of municipal politics in Paris that they haven't had for quite some time, is trying to come to terms with what it means to be a modern and very importantly, Republican municipal council in the aftermath of a kind of an imperial regime, an imperial regime that was heavily characterized and, in fact, you know, to some degree scuttled by its urban politics. Um, you know, towards the, one of those destabilizing events at the end of the Second Empire is the way that hospitalization becomes uh, sort of a target uh, for this burgeoning uh, solidified Republican opposition. Mm-hmm. Um, so the building question is is how this is how I bring together uh, many issues about which the municipal council has some jurisdiction and can debate and can attempt to work out what the proper role of you know the thing we call the capital T capital C the city is in uh, Republican uh, sort of municipal context um, and that's when they're trying to work out a question that that really putters through all the chapters, which is sort of what is the proper role of public authority and what is proper to private interest? Mm -hmm. Where can those two align? Where don't they align? And each in a case-by-case basis, what is it that the city should be doing and what is it that private enterprise should be doing? So this is a, I mean, it's it's a chapter that sort of introduces some of the key actors in the book. It introduces how development happens. Um, It introduces some of these big questions about where the city's responsibilities lie, both technically where they and then ideally where they should be. Um, and particularly, you know, how do we make sure that whatever we do, um, however many streets we build, however much housing we provide or don't, that we don't look like the empire. We have to look like, we have to be Republican. Right. Um, and that is just, you know, when it's, it doesn't even take it. You know, a historian doesn't have to find that. That's just what they're saying. <laughs> the second chapter of the book, Alexia, focuses on speculative builders as, you know, you turn the purpose of, actors in urban land use decisions and their role as generators of common knowledge about how cities and markets should function. And the chapter is called, I love this chapter title, Seeing Like a Speculator. (laughs) So I guess I want you to say why it's called that as a way of getting at the this kind of central argument of the chapter, but also how you're using or referring to James Scott's work on seeing the mm-hmm. state. So what, what role that plays in terms of your framework here, but then, yeah, what does it mean to see like a speculator as the historian writing about speculators in the 19th century in Paris? Yes. And from another, you know, real estate agents are hard to find. Speculators are hard to find too. Um, and so you know, part of the goal of this chapter is to recover this work that speculators were doing um, mm. when they were, uh, you know, building the city. So much of how we talk about it and how we talk about real estate speculation today is in these terms that really obfuscate agency, right? We talk about, you know, bubbles and we talk about fevers and we talk about, mm-hmm. 
the term they use at the time, they use magic wands a lot. They will say, you know, like the, these magic wands are just bringing, bringing whole neighborhoods out yeah. of the ground. You know, one of the goals of this chapter is to be like, these are, as you said, purposive actors. These are people who are are thinking quite hard about what they're doing. We might not like what they do at all, um, but there is, uh, it's, it's hardly magic. And so... I wanted to, in uncovering that, I wanted to try to get at, you know, what it is. How does how does a speculator understand the environment in which they're working? What tools are at their disposal to try to discern how the how uh, their developments, you know, sort of are, are whether they're likely to succeed or not? How do they decide to go in this neighborhood and not that neighborhood? And you know, this brought me to, you know, so this notion of, um, you know, in a very kind of a lay way of sort of, you know, how do they see the city? And so I came to Scott actually via Mariana Valverde who has an article called mm-hmm. Seeing Like a City um, which is actually about sort of the police authority and the urban environment mm-hmm. and you know in sort of working back in that direction I realized that you know, what I was taking from Scott in, in this title is looking for the counter tendencies that are part of the rationalizing impulse of both the state and of capitalism. Um, so in looking at the tensions and the obstacles that that effort uh, to achieve a holistic vision, um, in this case of the urban environment, obviously in other cases of, of, of broader territories, and a kind of perfectly abstract market environment uh, encounter uh, in the context of both a specific city and a specific type of commercial object, which here I'm talking about, you know, real property. So where are the tensions in that? And I began to look at speculators as people whose task was to manage that friction that kind of consistently exists between this dynamic of trying to make property something that was abstract and exchangeable, um, that a lot on this street and a lot on that street could do the same thing for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is certainly the goal of the sort of financing mechanisms that are put in place in this period. But that is really never realized. It's not realized in the way they talk about the city. It's not realized in the way um, the city, if we can call it an actor for a moment, um, acts back upon their developments. Mm-hmm. It sort of brings a lot of their developments crashing down. So there is really this sort of consistent, um, you know, effort to to render a, a perfectly rational um, and perfectly uh, sort of abstracted uh, market setting uh, that is um, really consistently frustrated I think if you look at uh, if, you, if you take the right perspective on mm-hmm. uh, on the things that these people are both producing and the way they're talking about it you go on in the book Alexia to focus on individual proprietors there's this kind of back and forth in the book between the individuals who own and then these groups of speculative builders and investment corporations who were newer on the scene. So could you talk a little bit about the interactions between those groups and give us a sense of what percentages of operators are there? So there's an image of the growing takeover of real estate by these investment corporations and larger entities, but what's the ratio here of individual proprietors to other types of agents and actors in the city when it comes to real estate. And, you know, this is also a perfect opportunity to mention that I don't think I said, you know, property financing companies or insurance companies when I was cataloging my actors, but uh, here they are. There's so um, many of them. It's hard to list them <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, obviously, you've, uh, you've got an important tension in the book. Companies, in terms of the developer, in terms of developers, 
these new kinds of small-scale, limited liability joint stock companies that are kind of forming and disappearing within a span of months for speculative developments, those are quite substantially important in the field of development. Mm. In the field of ownership, Paris remains a city, and it, and it will into the mid-20th century, that is primarily owned by individual proprietors. Hmm. So the vast majority of, I believe, uh, you know, at the end of the 19th century, we've got something like, uh, you know, I'm going to get the number, it's around 80,000, I think it's slightly under 80,000 apartment buildings, uh, residential structures, I should say, they're not all apartment buildings in the city of Paris. And, you know, the corporately owned buildings, such as I have been able to count them, you know, are in the neighborhood of about 3,000. Um, that is a small number of the total buildings that, uh, you know, and this will, you know, in the 20s, this will jump tremendously. Um, and obviously today it's a very different picture, but they punch far above their quantitative weight. So you, these, these corporations might not own a vast proportion of the city, but the way that they preoccupy debate about property in the city, um, or the way that they dominate the debate and preoccupy policymakers um, and preoccupy, you know, for example, uh, these, these individual proprietors themselves um, as a possible model for what their own associations can look like. The norms that they introduce in terms of how to manage a property, those are all you know, sort of far more important than the actual you know, numbers of properties that they end up buying up by, say, 1910. And, and the fact is that this is when that trend towards uh, kind of a corporate city is beginning. It is in its early stages, uh, but it, you know, it is, it's making a very pronounced appearance um, and it's having distinct effects in how those who are in charge of governing the city think about what's possible in terms of housing. So numerically, they're definitely the new kid on the street, but they're really setting the terms for the discussion. And uh, and, and you do see that in the discussion of you know, one small way that I could you know, use an example of that is thinking about how private property owners who are beginning to form associations for the first time in uh, the 1870s. The big National Property Owner Association in France that we have today was founded in 1872 in the 11th Arrondissement of Paris. And they are very much holding out the corporate property developer and the corporate property owner as a model for the, well, as a justification mm -hmm. uh, for property owners who are otherwise seen as being uh, increasingly seen, I should say, because they, you know, mid-century, this is not the case, but by this period are increasingly seen as inactive members of the national economy. They're people who sit on their land and don't do anything. The corporate property model will hold up for these owners um, a, a real it's a real argumentative point in their favor from their perspective for making the argument that they have a really important economic role to play mm -hmm. um, in adding to the national economy. No one argues that these companies don't so why, why shouldn't we also be seen as kind of gathering together and augmenting our property value for the sort of benefit of the national economy. Um, so that's one way in which you know they're making uh, sort of a powerful impact on how property owners themselves are, are coming to understand what it is that they're doing in the city. Mm -hmm. One of the sort of major contributions of your book, it seems to me, is this, and we've talked about this already, this idea of a diversity of actors that you're bringing to the story of the city and space and building and, and the built environment and the 
social experience of all this. And and there are these great moments in, in this chapter, uh, in chapter three, there's this moment where you used an example. I, I had a real sense of the way that the private and the public are uh, imbricated and intertwined and in conflict in the city when you talk about the private roadways. So if you could say mm-hmm. a little bit about that, I think it would sort of illuminate your approach here for listeners. <laughs> And, you know, and I think it's also one of the ways that changes how people walk around the city. Mm-hmm. That and the fact that, you know, speculators often wrote their names on the sides of buildings. But I've had people as well tell me that, you know, oh, you know, my brother lives on Voie Privée and I never really thought about it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, so it does, it makes you notice these little, and you, and you start to notice what the terms like an impasse means um, or a villa, um, you know, that these, these have specific histories. And so the private roadways, uh, you know, were something that, again, is, it's a fairly surprising thing to discover. It's great to exploit uh, as these sort of, um, this is, a, you know, at the, at the end of the 19th century in Paris, there's about 1,500 streets which are classified technically as private, right? So they're they're outside the public domain of the city. The city doesn't get to, but pretty soon they will, but at this period they don't get to regulate what building looks like on these streets, what amenities are on these streets. Mm-hmm. These, so they, are, they are these sort of interstitial spaces. Um, yeah. And um, and it's surprising to think of you know the city that Houseman is supposed to have made by 1870 having all of these spaces and having these spaces continue to grow um, because in fact they are the core of how a lot of private development gets made. Um, You open an access road on a larger lot. um, That's how your workers get in and out of a lot. Um, You build houses um, and then that road stays behind. And if you don't open it to public circulation, it remains a private street. Um, And really, you know, until uh, laws will successively limit this. Um, But, you are, um, as a property owner, you're really on your own home turf and, and with that kind of property. And I had that great quote um, from one of the famous Lazar brothers, who uh, are these urban chroniclers of the 19th century, who you know, try, and, and they particularly chronicle the poor quartier of Paris, where they refer to these streets as hermaphroditic streets. Um, that they're streets that, that, you know, formally they haven't been turned over to the city, but obviously they're quite often physically open um so members of the public use them but they are technically private and, and you know the the city of paris will spend some time and, and successfully actually legislation passed at the national level will successfully sort of do away with these legal gray zones so i use them as a space to sort of signal both the physical and the juridical room for maneuver available to private property owners at the end of the 19th century i have to ask you alexia and you know, i know this is not at all the focus of the book but this is really a book about men yeah. Yes. And that again, it's not a judgment. Maybe <laughs> a judgment. It's a judgment I pass on myself. Um, and, and and you know, my my current research um is trying to somewhat go some lengths towards fixing this. But um, there are a few places where this does not quote unquote need to be about women. Particularly, there weren't very many women, say, real estate agents. There were a few. Um, there weren't very many. Um, property owners is now one of those places. Female property owners were hugely significant in the city of Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, they own a tremendous amount of property. And I think they were not represented at all in 
property owner associations that I study towards very much towards the very end of the period. I believe the core association, City of Paris, um, you know, has one issue of this paper where it discusses how, how a woman participated. And obviously, you know, women participate at all their festive occasions. Mm-hmm. But I, I think addressing that more critically absolutely should have been something that was in the book. I wonder, too, if part of the project here is about the representation of property and real estate and the city. I mean, I guess from other work on Paris, especially, but just the city in general, the idea of, I mean, not just women's participation in all this, which is one issue, but also just the idea of gendered and sexualized metaphors Mm -hmm. for like property exchange, for real estate. In the, you know, in the advertising for suburban properties um, Mm. the advertising is overtly gendered Um, and again I pass over this fairly quickly uh, but I do discuss a little bit the presentation of sort of the nuclear family um, that is often at the center of these sort of lavish posters advertising suburban developments I include one image in the book um, in which uh, a poster for a suburban development in which essentially you just see um, a very well dressed woman and I've actually I've used that image in presentation using it to uh, compare to contemporary advertisings for condominiums, which will often just have, you know, sort of, uh, you know, a very, you know, an incredibly well-dressed, obviously urban woman who is enjoying a cosmopolitan lifestyle. Um, You know, it's in in that sense, they're incredibly parallel. Um, And this, you know, woman's body is able to stand in for uh, sort of refined lifestyle, for good taste, for, I would say, because in this particular image, she's shown as as a single woman with all the sort of accoutrements of someone who is, uh, you know, very attentive to uh, accessories of her class that, uh, part of her ability sort of stand in, I mean, she's obviously standing in for a kind of kind of competitive and conspicuous consumerism and possibly even sort of the convenience of uh, this particular suburban development, which is, you know, close to the city of Paris, but allows you a little bit of escape. But that's also, in general, the most evocative of the property advertising are these suburban development posters. It's They're just, they're the richest, they're the ones that are filled with the most kind of um, symbology of all kinds. Um, I would say one other place where, again, um, some of the earlier part of the century, um, I do have one of these quotes in there, um, discussions of how people, you know, sort of in visiting apartments and trying to find a new apartment, you're really violating this domestic sanctum. Mm-hmm. Some of that discussion, uh, there's you know, one particular example from, I think, uh, you know, really popular urban physiognomy from 1840, where they discuss apartment hunting, they discuss all these signs popping out at you like courtesans, um, that they're sort of, you know, like hawking their wares in the streets. And I think those same kinds of worries, you know, later when I, I was saying, this is one of the places where, and this isn't about gender ministry, but where women do come back into the story in terms of the subletting of apartments, you know, at the, sort of at the end of the story, I think some of the anxiety that sometimes surrounded discussions of boarding and letting, um, of letting people into particularly middle-class homes was around this idea of, of sort of commercializing what should be domestic and private um, and I think is sort of implicitly uh, sexualized in that way, that there's a notion that that strangers are coming and going from these rooms, um, often rooms that are let by women. Now we're talking about a price point that is rather high, but I think, you know, some of that same kind of concern about an illicit traffic in the home is, is a, you know, sort of a different way that it is gendered, but I could have done a lot more with that in the book. 
I mean, we've already talked, Alexia, about figure of the real estate agent. And, you know, you do have a whole chapter where you talk about their professionalization and their sort of entrepreneurial identity (laughs) and, you know, other professions, lawyers, notaries, efforts to regulate the field in the period. And then you go on to talk about press and advertising, which we've touched on already. But I do want to come back to this representation of the apartment hunt that is, you know, the burden Mm -hmm. that this new profession and its attendant press and advertising machine will resolve for the the 19th century consumer. But thinking about my own experience, (laughs) trying to find places to stay in press, I I thought, oh, this whole dilemma has this history that now somehow has ended us up with, I don't know, Airbnb and internet sites where you look at multiple photographs of apartments. So I I guess I just wanted to ask you to say more about the role that apartment hunting plays as a, as a kind of cultural, social, economic object that you're exploring in the, in, in this part of the book. I mean, the, the hunt lets me do a few things. I mean, what's interesting is the, uh, I was going to ask you, you know, I mean, has this, has your search for an apartment, have you now decided that you should just turn to an agent and have someone do this for you? Like, most of us don't do that. Um, and a lot of people in the past didn't do that either. Um, but uh, in France, this particular, if you've ever watched any of the contemporary real estate shows in France, which you might imagine I, I do quite often, this, this new profession of the people who will seek an apartment for you um, a chasseur d'appartement is, well, it's quite new. Um, and it's one of these great ways of th- sort of thinking about, um, and so it gets to some of the broader, uh, I hope, you know, contributions of the book, yeah. with thinking about this sort of uneven modernity, right? This, These people try to create a new need for their profession, and, and to a certain extent, they, they succeed. But it's not a constant story of, and now this is why real estate looks the way it does today, right? Because right? there's moments it goes away and it comes back, and things get reinvented consistently. So now there's this impression that what, one of the really interesting things about the French real estate market, or sorry, I should say the Parisian real estate market, is that until very, very recently, you know, agents had a really hard time getting a foothold in there. You know, the biggest real estate exchange site in France is Particulier à Particulier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all of us as scholars have looked at it and been like, oh, we're not French. How can we and we don't have a deposit. We don't have these forms. Oh, God, I've forgotten about that. <laughs> That's from person to person, right? That is, agent didn't intervene. They, uh, It remained very individualized. Um, and agents have, have had a really hard time trying to convince people that they have something special to offer um, in this particular market. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they how they do try to do that um, when they start coming about and they're trying to both compete with notaries, who are the people who are most involved in property sales. The rental market is kind of wide open for them to, to maneuver in. Um, and they're also trying to convince you know, home seekers uh, that they have something of value to contribute to this. Um, and they absolutely they play up the illegibility of the city. Um, they sometimes play up the, the danger of the city. Um, they certainly discuss sort of just the uh, over and over the metaphor of you know how annoying it is to climb stairs. <laughs> And to deal with the annoying <laughs> concierge, um, and to have to maybe tip the concierge if you want to see the apartment, and how someone else can really, you know, they can do this all for you, or they can at least, you know, make you appointments and ensure that that it all goes very smoothly. And in the process, they develop. Just like speculators did, a whole range of tools that people can use um, in order to try to facilitate something they might otherwise do or begin to think about a move they may not have thought about without them. And that is, you know, this whole new kind of 
property marketing press that really explodes at the end of the 19th century and that also innovates in its forms, um, you know, developing sort of new representations of domestic space in order to convince people that whatever they desire is just, it's out there, they just haven't found it yet. It's just behind this facade. And if you trust me, I'll get it for you. You know, this really this discussion of things that are hidden in plain sight that they really exploit quite dramatically. And of course, they're helped in that by various kinds of both 1848 and 1871 mm-hmm. um, insurrections that I think uh, really do jar people's relationship to the urban environment that really unsettle uh, what were previously understood sort of appreciations of, of how the city works. And so that's something that, that again, they're able to, uh, to exploit. In the sixth chapter of the book, Alexia, you, you look at districts of the future, and it's another kind of provocative chapter title. So I guess I want to ask what the, what the districts or these you know, areas are that you're talking about here. And then also kind of more broadly, going back to something you said earlier about following property from mm-hmm. building all the way up to use by individuals in neighborhoods, placement, that kind of stuff in context. Here, also kind of thinking about the story that you're telling is one that has, you know, an end in terms of how spaces are exchanged and then used and, and, and the social spaces that are produced by these structures, the inadvertent and intentional, as you say, social spaces produced by these structures, but then also how all of this looks ahead or projects a kind of vision of the future of the city, a future of building in, in more specific ways, but then a broader future of Paris from the perspective of real estate. Yeah, and in this case, districts of the future is a term um, from the actors. Um, So this was something that came from how uh, one of the two corporate property owners that I look at in this chapter, uh, this is the Compagnie Foncière de France, um, and the other company is the Rance Foncière, but this term comes from the Compagnie Foncière de France um, and the classification that they adopt for their property portfolio. Um, So this is one of the instances in which, um, and something that I think I have either fortunately or unfortunately become obsessed with, which is trying to make really boring things say interesting things. So their annual pro- their annual reports to their shareholders, which are not always the most interesting documents to read, they are, in times of crisis, a little bit more interesting. Um, and one of the things that I tried to study was how they represented their properties to the shareholders that to whom they are responsible. Um, so this is a company that that by the 1890s owns 167 buildings. The Hans Foncier owns about 200 more. Um, and they design a particular uh, sort of classification system for the types of buildings that they own and the geographic uh, districts in which they're located. And the districts of the future are the way that they describe the west end of the city. And these are particularly areas that have been heavily built up in a speculative bubble in the 1880s and, you know, whose sort of ritzy, um, you know, very refined futures still lie maybe a decade and a half ahead of them. So you, these are these are areas that insurance companies will come into and build up pretty quickly. But at this point, these corporate buildings are still some of the only really substantial buildings out there. Hmm. And so what I did in this chapter was, this is where I try to say, I actually also want to give some space to the apartment buildings themselves um, as another one of these actors in the story. This is a type of architecture that's been overlooked. Um, It was not rated at all by contemporary critics. It's often overlooked by historians. And yet, you know, these these are the invisible 
buildings that we're not supposed to look at because we're staring at, you know, the icon that Houseman has placed at the end of a street, right? So, but I, I wanted us to look at them. Um, and so, you know, again, to refer to sources, I use these decennial tax surveys uh, to kind of follow tax surveyors inside these apartment buildings, to walk with them up and down the stairwells, through the courtyards, into the individual apartments, Mm -hmm. and then to get a sense uh, to the degree that I can from these sources of how those buildings were used. In no place, as I said earlier, I didn't find tenants where I wanted to find them. Um, You know, I have all the reports of these companies. Um, I don't have any of their correspondence with tenants. And that is sort of what I really wanted to find, um, and I haven't found it, despite writing to the homes of various uh, mm-hmm. you know, kind of corporate uh, contemporary owners. Uh, the current owner of the Compagnie Française de France is a Spanish multinational. But what I can tell from these surveys is the degree to which the companies placed managers throughout their buildings, how they adapted these spaces to suit um, specific market circumstances as well as the needs of some tenants and then how tenants themselves um, I'm a, uh, I can only presume given as I said the density of these kind of agents in the buildings um, mm-hmm. with the knowledge of the company uh, begin to transform the spaces as well and so this is the space in which I uh, talk about discovering that this was really a very thoroughly commercialized space insofar as I found many many individual tenants who had begun the process of, of renting out parts of their own apartments um, in order possibly uh, to pay what were the very high rents of these districts of the future. So, I mean, there's something to talk about the future. I had, I did recently uh, reflect a little bit on, you know, how this is and isn't like Airbnb in that, you know, these are people who are, are renting out parts of their own apartment. Um, we can track them because they get taxed for that. Um, in the 19th century, so uh, we can track at least the people who declare it. And you know, this is a very middle class, upper middle class district. These are people who are paying 800, 1200 francs in rent. So, you know, presumably, you know, this is there. There's other ways that they could uh, find money if they needed to. Mm-hmm. Um, they could always they could rent a, a you know a cheaper apartment as, as possible. And and you can try. You can see that you know sometimes the activity p- it picks up during the expositions. Um, you know, which are nearby to these houses. So you do see a certain amount of, you know, oh, there's going to be tourists in town. Perhaps I'll rent out part of my flat. And, yeah, and I suppose the parallel that I drew most directly was that, you know, in some of these buildings, when you, when you see this practice, um, it becomes very spatially concentrated. Other neighbors learn it from neighbors. They begin to do it too. Um, and in a few of these cases, entire apartment buildings became... Uh, hotels. So, you know, if I were to hazard a lesson for today, I would say that these this this practice does seem to uh, sort of permanently remove rental housing for uh, long-term tenants. I mean, I have to say, Alexia, like I live in Vancouver, and reading your book was so fascinating <laughs> to me. In the epilogue to the book, you look ahead to the First World War and its impact on the commercialization of property. So what did the war change? What sort of 
continuities are there from the period that you're looking at uh, after mm-hmm. World War One? Yeah, well, what we see happen um, in the war is, I mean, the, as I said, so in each of these chapters, we're really seeing this effort to examine this boundary between, you know, what is the market, what is commercial, what is business, and, and what is something else, either, you know, social or civil. And you know, and that continued uh, in this period. This is, you know, why I call the, the epilogue sort of impossible markets. But one of the things that, that happens, uh, you know, with the experience of the war is obviously, uh, you know, a story that, that many people are familiar with. It happened during the commune as well. We get moratoriums on rents. And this is, you know, to support those who are fighting at the front um, and who would otherwise lose an apartment um, when they when they left the city. And uh, I think, as we know, in Tyler Stovall's work on uh, sort of 19 19 and consumer struggles in Paris, the rent moratorium gets what it, what sort of initially becomes a practice like a social provision um, gets really quickly inscribed into this discourse of consumer rights. And then importantly, in 1919, you get a law that's instituted um, against illicit speculation in rents. Um, and this is similar to other kinds of laws that, that characterize the, the, the war years in terms of punishing people who were gaining illicit profits on very basic necessities, hoarding goods and trying to sort of profiteer during the war as they're worried that rent moratoriums are about to end right. um, and they won't end, um, but they're afraid, you know, they, they might, they they institute this law. And this again has this, you know, this contradictory effect, you know, lawyers begin to debate, can we even call uh, rent is civil, it's not commercial. Can you speculate in something that's civil? Um, this is the big divide that tracks through the whole book between what it is that, that sits outside the market in the civil realm and what it is that sits in it in the commercial realm. And so, again, in this contradictory way, to be able to charge someone with illicitly speculating in rent, um, you have to think about apartments as a merchandise. You have to make them like uh, sugar or coffee. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and you know, sort of the state here is needs to sort of make a market in order to regulate it. And I think that that's, you know, something that continues into the interwar period, you know, because, because nothing about, and this is sort of, you know, part of the reason the book ends where it does is that nothing about the property market looks the same after the war. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we get a lot of interesting innovations you know, will begin for the first time, for instance, to begin to get condominiums. One of the things that people are often most surprised about reading the book is realizing that all of these apartments that you've read about in all these French novels are actually just rented. No, no one owns them. Nice. <laughs> you know, Madame Bovary is renting her her place. But that'll begin to change um, simply because people need to be able to find money to begin to build some more buildings again. And of course, I have to talk about this period because it's when we get the most long-lasting real estate agents association as well. So as they are beginning to get he was accused um, in a very direct way of colluding with property owners in order to drive up rents, in order to hoard this new merchandise, which is this precious housing. Real estate agents will form, a, sort of, the, in 1921, a new professional association in order to sort of really take a stand and to uh, attempt uh, to continue this long-standing effort they've had to sort of moralize their profession and to really develop a. Uh, a um, sort of a commercial personhood that is understood as as honorable and uh, professional rather than venal. So, so those dynamics will again; th- those will have have long-standing effects as well. I mean, we still have that association will after the Second World War become FNAIM, which is the, the the current national association for real estate agents in France, um, and it is directly out of those sort of wartime dynamics that that's born. Well, Alexia, there are loads of other questions I'd like to ask you, but I'm just going to ask you one more, which is what are you working on now? 
Oh, um, so I'm continuing, uh, you know, my interest in, you know, the institutions that shape economic practice and this, the stuff really that constitutes economic life. And part of what I love about this book is sort of the, my effort to really make this kind of stuff tangible mm. and to think in historically specific ways about how capital moves and how it becomes fixed in particular social arrangements. So I'm looking at investment um, more broadly. So I'm moving sort of, I could say, from the world of, you know, sort of fixed investment to more movable investment. Um, looking at a social and cultural history of mass investment in the 19th and 20th century in France. Um, particularly looking at, you know, sort of progressively how small savers get pulled into the financial market and uh, really being attentive to uh, France's uh, particular, call it, I don't know, their particular economic modernity, uh, small savers' enthusiasm for finance, which really marks, uh, it's a distinctive uh, characteristic of the investment public in this country at the end of the 19th century, um, and their enthusiasm for international finance. Um, so I'm really interested in, in how the French people begin to send their money to South Africa, how they send it to Panama, how they send it to uh, you know, the Ottoman Empire. Um, what kind of work has to go into convincing them that that's a smart thing to do? And what does that mean for someone who lives, you know, sort of often in very isolated places in the middle of France? How did that come to be? Uh, what were the mechanisms that sort of brought the market to them and then brought them their money back out uh, into a global economy? Well, that sounds like an exciting and important project, and I hope you'll keep me posted on its development. <laughs> Alexia, I just want to thank you so much for speaking with me today and for writing the book. Thank you very much. 